Hello and welcome to week three of our Learn to Read the Bible Effectively uh, seminar. Uh, you might recall that last week we looked at uh, why there's two Testaments, an Old Testament and a New Testament, and the fact that we need uh, all of the scripture from Genesis into Revelation to really understand what's going on. And uh, we'll actually see that reinforced today uh, at the end of our seminar when we look at the temptations of Jesus and see how the Old Testament helps us understand what's going on uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the big section last week was the role of prophecy, and we looked at how Daniel chapter 2 outlines really all of world history since that time, uh, written about 500 BC, and gives us confidence that God's word is, is exactly that, breathed by him for only God can predict the future. Uh, we looked at some uh, some tips on reading and uh, the idea to have a plan and a steady diet of God's word. Uh, a little bit every day is, is what we need, just like we need uh, physical food. We looked at some terminology, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to uh, to look at the homework, but we looked specifically uh, at the word soul and how the English word uh, soul uh, is comes from a, a Hebrew word nephesh or a a, a Greek word in the New Testament, uh, suke, and really might give us quite a bit of different insight into uh, what actually the Bible is speaking of when it uses those words and how the English word soul may actually distract from a, a good understanding, an effective understanding of, of what is meant in, in the Bible when those words are used. Well, we, we may have jumped ahead a little bit last week, especially with our worksheet on soul and uh, specifically how to use some study tools to understand those words. And uh, we're going to go through that a little, a little bit more um, today. So if that was a little bit uh, challenging for you last week, uh, hopefully it'll make more sense after today. So um, we're, we're trying to learn to read the Bible effectively. And, and as we've mentioned, listening for echoes, you know, where have I heard this before? Um, you know, reading patiently and carefully and that it takes time, that the Bible is uh, difficult to read but that we must uh, allow the Bible to interpret itself. Well, these study tools that we're going to look at uh, today and also in week four really kind of helps to, to speed up that process just a little bit. You know, if you're a gardener, uh, you know that uh, when you plant seeds and you till the ground, uh, sometimes you need a little bit of help. So we add some, some fertilizer uh, to help uh, in the, the growth of those plants. Well, reading from God's word is just kind of like that. It's kind of like planting seeds in our minds and allowing them to grow. Well, I always thought, why don't we just plant seeds right into the fertilizer? And uh, I've been told that doesn't work. You know, you can't, you can only speed up the process so much. You can only enhance the process so much. You need the natural dirt and, and what nature offers. And what the fertilizer does is just enhances that a little bit and, and, and helps it along. That's kind of like what these study tools are. Um, so we're going to look at, at some of them um, today uh, in this first session in study tools and also in the, the third, third session on cross-references. So uh, let's let's jump right in. Uh, now there's some some big words here. We, we, we mentioned these just a little bit last week, concordances and lexicons. Really, concordance is just an, an alphabetic list of all the principal words in the Bible listed in their immediate context. So it's it's literally a listing of every single word. If it's an exhaustive concordance, you may have a concordance in the back of your, your Bible that's got you know, a few key words. Uh, I know this, this Bible here does, um, the one that I have, um, but it may not be exhaustive and, and it may not show all the words and it may not show all the places that they occur. 
And then a lexicon really works in, in conjunction uh, with a concordance. So you find the word, the passage uh, in, in the concordance, and then the lexicon you look up and it's kind of like a dictionary and it tells you what it means. And so we'll find out that that, that English word may have some nuances of meaning based on the um, based on the Greek or Hebrew word it comes from. And uh, perhaps the most well-known one is this, uh, I don't know how well you can see that picture, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. Uh, this was written by a man named James Strong, compiled, really, uh, way back in the, um, the 1800s. Now, if you have a either um, software on your computer or on your phone, um, this this uh, process is, can be speeded up even further. You don't need to go to the um, to the uh, the hard copy. We'll we'll show you both in a moment. Um, so here's here's a screenshot from the uh, computer program that I have, and here's Matthew chapter one. And we mentioned Matthew chapter one last week. You know, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well. That shows how important the Old Testament is, uh, because this is the first verse of the New Testament, and we may not know who David and Abraham were if we didn't have the record in Genesis and in, in Samuel and Kings. Well, here is the same um, passage uh, from my uh, online Bible uh, on, on my computer. I have one called Power Bible, but there are other available. You can see that this is called the inter interlinear. So here's the, the English, here's the Greek, here's the English, here's the Greek. And so it, you can find out what all these Greek word mean, Greek words mean. So for example, here, a book, the English word book here in the King James Version is the Greek word biblos, Bible. That's where we get our, our word Bible from. And you'll remember in our very first uh, we, we saw that the Holy Bible is a separate or special book. Um, the word generation here, the generation of Jesus Christ, is Genesis. So again, when we say Genesis, we're, we're speaking Greek in an anglicized way. And it just means the generation, the beginning, the, 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 the lineage. Uh, we mentioned last week, there's the, the, the Greek word Jesus, Jesus, uh, that in Hebrew is Joshua. And there's Christ, Christoph. So Jesus Christ is an anglicized form of Jesus Christ in English, Jesus Christos. And we remember that Christos just means anointed. So Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham, and so on. So whether we go to a, a concordance that's a hard copy, uh, or we have some sort of software on our computer or our phone, this helps us to... to to, although we're reading in English, we can check back to what the, the Greek and Hebrew words are. Now, what might we use concordance for? There's a couple of things. Uh, it might help you to find passages. So you might remember, oh, I remember that first week when we did the Learn Truth Bible Effectively. There was that really cool passage, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was something to do with Jesus spoken on the cross, but it was in the Old Testament. And, and you might not remember it. You might want to, you know, to share that with, with a friend and, and you're flipping through your Bible and you know, you just can't find it. So concordance can help you find verses. So it can be useful when you're trying to locate a verse. Uh, you just might remember a word or a phrase from that word verse. So my God, my God, why is that forsaken me? Where is that in the Bible? Well, um, and then we'll see it's also useful for, for looking more, more closely, more deeply um, at the words that are actually used. So my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, what word would we look up if we had a concordance? 
Um, you probably wouldn't look up the word my or God looking for this particular passage because that would there's lots of of um places where the word my is used in the Bible or the word God. So you might pick the word forsaken. So here's concordance. I know you can't see that. I'll blow it up in a minute. That's the page of a physical copy of a concordance. And you might be able to see here, I've got a page turned to the word forsaken. So there's the word forsaken. And here's all the places where the word forsaken occurs. And it's got just a little, um, a few lines uh, around that word. So if I, if I blow this up, um, you can see here in Matthew 26, 46, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Also in Mark 15, verse 34, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So we know, oh good, it's in um it's in Matthew chapter 27. And you could go there and and uh, earlier on in this part you can't see over here, you'd see that it's also in Psalm 22. And so you've made that connection to from Matthew and Mark back to Psalm 22, and you can then hopefully recreate all those interesting uh, points that we learned when we looked at that in our first week. Now, there's also a Bible app. I have one uh, on, on Android called My Sword. I think there's an equivalent one on Apple called uh, Pocket Sword. And what it allows you to do, this is this is mine. This is a screenshot from, from mine. I can actually search for a phrase. So if I want to search for my God, my God, I just click here this exact phrase click OK, and we can see that it occurs in these three places. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so on. So again, a quick searchable. We're so used to searching things in our electronic world. Uh, you can do that with a Bible app. Now, a lexicon allows you to uh, look up the meanings of words. So let's just go back to this one. We might have been able to say, well, what does it mean to be forsaken? And you could you could look that up, um, and that might help to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. So it's we can look up definitions. Uh, it gives insight into how words are used. Now, the way that works here, again, with uh, this is on my one that I have on my computer. There's Christos. It means anointed, the Messiah. So here in Matthew 1, verse 1, we looked up Christ. We click on that. This pops up. This is the Strong's number, 5547. That's useful if you want to do the, the, the hard copy version. You have to flip to the back of Strong's Concordance where the lexicon is and look up this number. So you don't have to be able to speak the language. Um, you can just look it up by number. Um, here it's it's uh, Christos. Uh, this is... Uh, and, and here's the meaning, the definition. It tells you it's from another related word, which you could look at. You can search for that word in, in the Bible. It's It really allows you to do some really interesting um, studies. And as we mentioned, Christos is the anointed one, equivalent to Messiah in the Hebrew. Now, why might the meaning of words matter? We'll do one little case study here in John 21. You may want to turn in your Bibles to John 21. Um, because sometimes, uh, again, the English word may not give the full sense. You know, for example, we mentioned last week, um, the word soul may have a lot of baggage with it that may not be there uh, in the, uh, the original language. Okay, so John chapter 21, this is right at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus has died, um, and he's been resurrected, and he's spending uh, the last few moments uh, with his disciples. And in this chapter, uh, 
we can see that uh, Peter decided to go fishing. Perhaps they were unsure what was next. They were waiting for more instruction from Jesus. So they've gone fishing and, and they couldn't, they didn't catch anything all night. Uh, and then in the morning, there's a man on the shore. He tells them to cast on the right side of the ship. They get a great haul of fish, just like they did at the beginning. Jesus is reminding them, I'll care for you. I'm going to look after you. And uh, the, the disciples come in. Peter, of course, in his haste, dives in and swims to see Jesus. Um, and so they get there and Jesus actually has had breakfast prepared for them. So they needed to learn to trust in him. Now, after they'd eaten breakfast, we pick it up in verse 15. So when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. This is a peculiar conversation, especially when it goes on into the next verse. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. And he says to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you, Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now there's lots going on here. And there's a lot we can get just from the, from the English. We can have a great conversation. Why three times? You might think about that. Why did Jesus ask him the same question three times? And, and why was it on the third time that Peter was, was so grieved and, and upset? Um, well, we might think back to the, the three denials that, uh, that Peter had of Jesus just 40 days before this at the, at the trials of Jesus. Uh, and, and it was all around Peter's boast, Lord, I could go to, I'll go to death with you. And Jesus said, really, Peter, you know, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter's like, I'll never deny you. And he did. So perhaps there's that going on. Um, there's the feeding of my lambs and the tending of my sheep and the feeding of my sheep. There's some interesting word study there that I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, mention to you um, to look into in, in more detail. And the, the feeding the, and, and the lambs and the sheep and the tending, it's all different words. But we're from going to focus on this first phrase here. And what, what I did is I pasted into here um, the interlinear. And we can see that in the, the first instance here, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Is this Greek word agapeo, agapeo. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, philio. Um, you know, what's what's going on there? So, you know, the word love in English is, well, you know, I can love my wife, uh, but I also love pizza. Uh, those are very different kinds of love, um, hopefully. Um, so we've got something going on here that's quite in interesting. So when we, we look at the second time, Jesus asked the same question, do you love me? And, and, and with agapeo type love, and, and uh, Peter responds, yes, you know that I, I filio you. The third time, it's the same word filio every time. So it's not the same question. In English, it looks like he's asked the same question three times. But in Greek, there's something different. In the third time, Jesus asks Peter, Simon Peter, do you filio me? Now, that should, that should spark some interest in us. What's the difference between this agapeo love and this filio love? Well, if we, if we follow this through... Um, this means to, 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 agapeo means to love in a social or moral sense. Um, it's, it's an act of benevolence or, you know, like the love feast 
sometimes translated charity or charitable. Um, and, and you can see here, it's just, these are all related words, number 25, 26, 27, to be dear, beloved. Um, it's, it's the kind of love here. It's used quite extensively in the New Testament. But this one, I think, gives the sense, uh, the famous passage in John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world. So this, we might call a deep, a deep love, a godly kind of love, the kind of love that, that God shows and that, that people who are, are closely connected in a spiritual way, that's how they love. You know, um, God so loved the world. It's 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 a it's a godly love, an agape love. This word filio uh, means to be a friend, to be fond of. It's it's not a it's not it's not a bad word. It's a very good word. We need to have brotherly love one to another. Um, here we can see in Romans twelve, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Um, and you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Here we've got Philadelphia. So Phila is this filio, brotherly, and Adelphos. Um, sorry, love and Adelphos is is brothers. So love like brothers, brotherly love, a friendship. So what we've got going on here, if we sort of recreate this discussion between Jesus and Peter, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me dearly? Do you have this deep affection for me? Do you love me, Peter, like God loves you? That's his first question. And, you know, he said, do you love me more than these? Was he talking about the other disciples? Was he talking about his fishing endeavors? Like, Peter, you know, what, what are you doing here? Are you putting me first in your life? Do you love me with that deep, affectionate kind of love? And Peter's not so sure now. He's not that boastful Peter the night before the, the trials when he boasted that he would go to death, go to him uh, to the death. So Peter answers, Lord, you know I'm your friend, Philio. So, so Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you, do you love me dearly? Do you love me like I love you? Uh, with this, this, the kind of love that God has shown. And, and Peter says, Lord, I'm your friend. You know that. He wasn't willing to commit at this point in his life, just where he was at. And, and you know, he asked Jesus asked him a third time, and that grieved Peter because it was asked for the third time. But it wasn't just that it was the third time. In this third time, Peter is asked by Jesus, Peter, are, are you really my friend? No wonder he was devastated. Jesus was questioning even Peter's, you know, friendship. And that's when he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I'm your friend. And I think it just, just brings more out of this passage. And, and we know that it goes on and, and Jesus reassures Peter that, you know, he is going to, to um, care for other people. He's going to go to the death for his Lord. Um, and if you just finished reading uh, John 21. So it just, it, what's there in English um, is fine. It, it, it gives the sense. But there's a deeper level when we can look into the meanings of, in this case, the, the Greek words. And it just, the, the, the passage then just unlocks a lot more than what we might see if we just read the, the translation. So that's, that's one of the study tools that we can use, uh, concordances and lexicons, to dig a little bit deeper into the meaning of Scripture. Now, the second section on terminology, there's, there's a few things we want to look at. Um, the, first of all, these two classes of individuals, Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, Pharisees were a religious party or school among the Jews at the time of Christ. They had come out of 
the time period when the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. They were the word Pharisee means the separated one. They think tended to to think of themselves a little bit more highly than others. Um, and the the main thing was that they were uh, obsessed with this um, oral law as well as the the, the written law. And, and so they had the scribes and the Pharisees were also all, always together, often together. Uh, you know, Jesus said to them, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, as we have here in Matthew 23. Um, so they were, they were, you know, obsessed with the meanings of the law, but the law said, you know, don't work on the Sabbath day. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes had, you know, 500 more definitions of what it meant to work and how far you could go on the Sabbath day and, and what, and, and what work actually was. They, they went over the top in trying to define that. Um, some have said they were, you know, so scrupulous. Jesus uh, warns them of standing in the marketplace and making these long prayers just to be seen of men because they were these separated special ones. And they they were actually quite proud um, and uh, weren't at all, in some cases, uh, godly in their approach to things. Uh, and so the sense of, of fairness and, and what's right and what's wrong. And, and so um, the one way to remember this is uh, it wasn't fair, you see, Pharisee. They 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 were all about, you know, who who was in and who was out. And they saw themselves as this special separated category. And they looked down on other people and, and judged them. And so they weren't fair, you see. Well, the Sadducees, on the other hand, um, this means, this word Sadducee means the righteous ones. And they were only, they only uh, read and thought it found, found authoritative the first five books uh, of the of the Old Testament, the, the, the Torah. Um, and the thing about Sadducees is they didn't believe in the resurrection. It says here in Acts 23, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. The Pharisees confess both. And uh, they didn't believe in the afterlife. So these men were the ones that were, um, they were in league with the uh, the Romans, they were put in charge of the Romans. They had, they had control over the the temple and its precincts. Uh, so it's the Sadducees and the chief priests are together, um, and and they were the ones that you know brought in soldiers into the temple. They were upset when Jesus cleansed the temple. And this was sort of their domain. They had the marketplace. It was about making money. Uh, that was the most they were they were concerned with because they didn't believe in an afterlife, which is why they were sad. You see. You can laugh. It's okay. So quick summary here, Pharisees and Sadducees. They were normally quite um, an, an antagonistic to each other. Uh, the Pharisees focused on the law. The Sadducees focused on the temple. <clears throat> uh, but they came together when they had a common enemy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the Pharisees were obsessed with the interpretations of the Torah, all the written law, the, the, the extra writings uh, that the, their scribes wrote. Um, around the Torah, whereas the Sadducees were Torah alone. The, the Pharisees tended to come to, from, from the middle class, whereas the the, Pharise, the Sadducees were the upper class, and so on. Resurrection of the dead, no resurrection. Belief in an afterlife, no afterlife. Um, those that you know uh, were in, in cahoots with the Romans were rejected by the Pharisees, but supported by the Sadducees. So, Pharisees, uh, it was all about what, what did the law say and who they were going to judge. You know, they were the ones that dragged the woman who was taken in adultery and challenged Jesus. Um, Sadducees were the ones that were lining their pockets with all the spoils from the marketplace in the temple. 
And so uh, Jesus dealt with both of them. And it's important to understand there is a difference between them when we're reading that historical account of Jesus interacting with them. Um, now, some other ones here, uh, scribes and priests. So the scribes were the Pharisees. They literally were those that wrote out the law and the little annotations to the law. And um, there are many famous scribes uh, in the Bible. Um, and they were looked to because they were the ones that wrote things out. It was sort of assumed that they had a deeper knowledge of what was in the books that they were writing. Um, the priests uh, were literally male descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And uh, they were um, those that worked, did the, did the work in the temple. And the, the priests, the chief priests especially, were aligned with the Sadducees. So just a little bit of historical um, background information that you can get from a Bible dictionary uh, that helps you when you're reading, especially the account of the life of Jesus. Now, it will remind you that in your workbook, which we've made available online as well, uh, there's many other terms there. So remember, in those workbooks, uh, there's two sections we don't do a lot of uh, detail with. Um, the uh, the terminology section, well, we, we touch base on a couple of the of the reference of the words that are there, the terms. And then there's an entire section on the overview of the books of the Bible, which we don't cover in these uh, seminars, just to be a bit more efficient in our time. But every single book of the Bible is, is there with a little summary, a breakdown of the chapters, the main overall purpose, and, and will just help you as you're reading through the scriptures. Now, this, uh, this is our, our last section for this week, leading into our homework for this week, which we will also post, which we'll just touch base briefly um, when we, when we uh, get to the end of this section here. And it's called cross-references. Um, now, cross-references... These, I, I think the best way to understand these is they kind of help you with in the listening for echoes. They make some connections uh, between the different passages. Now, it's important to understand that these are put in here by um, whoever uh, published your Bible. So this, this little Bible that I have, um, this little Bible that I have is uh, by a publisher called Nelson Company. And... Um, these these verse references are supplied by the publisher or translator and what they do is they make connections for you in other places in the bible um where a similar word event or phrase may be found now there's some that have center references the bible i have here um, has center references um sometimes you'll find them at the end of the uh of your bible you may have a bible that doesn't have cross references so one thing that I would suggest if you've, you know, enjoyed these seminars and you want to read the Bible more effectively for yourself, um, maybe look into, and you want to get a new Bible, um, look into one that maybe has these references either down the middle or off to the side or at the bottom or some combination. Um, there is also an entire book. Here's one called Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge, um, Cross References. Um, and again, it's a hard copy book. And what it has is for each verse of the Bible, it has other verses that relate to that verse. Sometimes it might be, well, you're in Kings and here's the parallel account in Chronicles, or you're in Matthew and here's the parallel account in John. <clears throat> so it's connecting those kinds of things. Sometimes it might be a word, this word seed, uh, in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, that seed might be picked up. There might be a cross-reference to 
2 Samuel 7, where seed is used or offspring. Um, so it's just making connections that kind of like these echoes that we've been talking about each week. So how do we use them? It's kind of like a chain reference. Um, it links teachings and prophecies between sometimes between Old and New Testaments or two places in the Old or two places in the New. Um, it can fill in details regarding persons, places, and subjects. You know, there might be one account where not all the details are given. And when you read the parallel account, you're like, oh, you know, Peter was also there. Or, oh, there was a whole multitude of people, not just these people. Those kinds of uh, ideas. Um, and it can sometimes clarify passages and meanings of words. Just the, the way in which a word is used in a different context might bring some light. So we'll look at a couple of examples. Um, once again, we go back to this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here is a copy of, uh, of, of a Bible um, with center references. And I know you can't see this right now. I'll blow this up in a minute. But you can see I've highlighted here, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, there's a little uh, letter Y right here. You can kind of just barely see it here. Um, and it's you go up here into chapter 27, verse uh, 46, and it says Matthew 22, verse 1. And so it's given you this echo. So it could be that you were reading through and you'd read Psalms, you know, a previous month, you get to Matthew and you're like, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? I remember where that is. And you'd have to remember that you'd read it in Psalms or you do your search on, on your, your app or you look it up in a concordance. Here, it's kind of done for you. Remember, this is kind of like the fertilizer. It's helping you understand the passage. You still got to go to Psalm 22, read the whole Psalm and, and put in the work but it's just a little bit of a, a shortcut to get there. Um, so as I said here, there's no better commentary in the Bible than the Bible itself. Uh, no source is more appropriate for interpreting God's word than God himself. It is, it is in this area that the use of cross-references can be so valuable. So if we were here and all we had was Matthew 27, uh, we might have all kinds of crazy ideas as to what Jesus meant when he said, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Even the people at the time didn't get it. They thought he was crying, calling for Elijah when he said, Eli, Eli. It was like, is he saying Elijah? They didn't understand. Um, but Psalm 22 helps us to understand exactly what Jesus was doing when he was referring or, or, or reciting those words. Now, here's another one. And you might want to turn this one up in your Bible. We're in Luke chapter 4. Um, now, Jesus has gone back to his hometown in the area of Nazareth, and he's he's uh, just been tempted. We're going to finish today with looking at his temptations, and that's the, the homework for today as well. Um, so I'm not going to finish it for you, but I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. After he's been tempted, he comes into his uh, hometown, and he goes into the um, the synagogue there. And they ask him to read. And he reads a passage. Of course, he's reading from the Old Testament. So let's just um, blow this up a little bit here. Um, we'll, we'll pick it up in, in verse um, 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And then reading from the screen here. And there was delivered unto him the book or scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place that was written. And so he would have had to scroll through this. It wasn't like a, 
a leafed book like we have, it probably would have been a scroll and he would have had to, you know, jiggle both ends of the scroll, winding and unwinding until he came to the passage that he wanted to read. And so he reads, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book or rolled up the scroll, gave it to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, you have to, another effective Bible reading um, method is to kind of put yourself into the story. And so imagine here's this, this, um now 30 year old man who'd grown up amongst them and he'd gone away for a while and he comes back and he's got a reputation now of being a rabbi so they want him to read he reads this section and you know what we've emphasized the spirit of the lord is upon me he has anointed me anointed christos he's anointed me to preach the gospel and and this is my role now and and to preach the acceptable year, the year of the Lord. And they're like, what's he going to say next? You know, you could have heard a pin drop, as we say, as there's this anticipation. All the eyes are looking at him. Okay, he's read from the scripture. Now, now what's he going to say about it? And it was the Jewish tradition that uh, the teachers sat down when they were going to teach. They stood up to read and they sat down to teach. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he would have gone on, probably to say more. You know, we'd, we'd love to know what he said. The interesting thing is, it says, they bear wit bear him witness and wondered all the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. But some of them said, is not this Joseph's son? And so like, just a sec, this is just Jesus, the guy we grew up with, went up with. We knew him when he was just a little kid. We knew him when he was just helping out around, you know, with his father's shop. Um, we, we know him. We, 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 we could he be this this could he be really be the messiah that's that's really not possible you know is he saying that he's come to fulfill this prophecy that was written in the old testament and so there was this um discussion and debate amongst them and, and we're going to see if you finish your homework that you'll see this carries on to the point where they actually tried to throw him off the brow of a hill they were so offended that he was taking upon himself this old testament prophecy it's like wow there's a lot going on here now, we can get all that from just reading Luke, but again, the cross-references can help us. It says, and when he opened the book, he found the place where he's written. Where is he reading from? Well, this little R here, verse 18, says he's reading from Isaiah 61, verse 1. And when we read Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, um, we get some insight into what's going on here. And you can read it. It's pretty much word for word. There's some subtle differences um, and there's some interesting suggestions as to why, depending on which manuscript they were using uh, in Jesus's day. It says, the spirit of the Lord, God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable the year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now, my, my suggestion is when you see this, and you go back to the Old Testament, read the verses before the verse that's quoted, and keep reading after. And, and I would encourage you to do that with Isaiah 61. 
We'll just make one quick point here. Notice that it says in verse 19 of Luke 4, Jesus read to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and he, he stopped. In, in, in our Bible, you can see there's a, a period there. He stopped. It says he closed the book, rolled up the scroll, and gave it back. He stopped in the middle of a verse. Now, we, we know the verses in, in uh, the original languages. There weren't verses and chapters and, and breaks the way we have them. But he stopped in the middle of a concept here, in the middle of a, of a, of a, a running on um, text. And what did he not read? That's the interesting thing to me. And this, you know, there's lots of interesting things here, but let's just think about that. And the day to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that's where Jesus stopped. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. He said, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. So from the spirit of the Lord is upon me and anointed me to preaching good tidings, uh, uh, binding up the brokenhearted, healing the 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 the, the people, um, setting at liberty, uh, proclaiming acceptably your Lord. That's what Jesus came to fulfill in his first coming. How did Jesus proclaim liberty to the, to the captives in the opening of the prison through his death and his resurrection? You know, the Son will make you free, and you will be free indeed. He said, uh, "We know that we have we're freed from the bondage of sin and death through the sacrifice of Jesus." That's what he came to do. Now, the day of vengeance was still something future. The, the scriptures teach clear that Jesus is coming back. And there will be a day of vengeance, but not the first time he came. He came, first of all, as a lamb. Uh, the, the, the lamb that was sacrificed from the foundation of the world. That perfect lamb without blemish. It was all about forgiveness of sins. When he returns, he will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he didn't read that part of the verse. He stopped in the middle of the verse. And that must have really intrigued them. Those that knew their scriptures would have been, just a sec, he didn't finish He didn't finish, finish the thought. Why is that? And I think we get some insight. And we wouldn't necessarily see that in the, in the only looking at the New Testament. We had to go back to where he's quoting to, to, to see that a little bit more. Now, we might say, you know, uh, how can we use technology to find this? Maybe, you know, you don't have a Bible with cross-references. Um, how can we do some of these things using concordance, using cross-references? Well, Moses may have said, don't these come on disc? Um, this other comic, comic here says, technically Moses is the first person to download files from the cloud using a tablet. Um, so yes, in, in uh, our 21st century, we do have these things on disc, on a tablet, on our phones, on our computers. Um, and how might we use that? Well, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So the, the person writing Acts says, look, um, I've, I've written something before, a former account um, of what Jesus began both to do and teach. And in the Acts of the Apostles, I'm going to continue that work. Well, um, here it is on my computer. Um, and here I've got the treasure, treasury of scriptural knowledge on my computer. It's right here, TSK. And what it says is, have a look at Luke chapter 1 for the former account and for this phrase, Theophilus. And so when we go to Luke 1, verse 1 to 4, we can see that it's actually Luke, the gospel writer Luke. Um, and he says, I've written to you, Theophilus, an account of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Um because I understood it, and I wanted to make sure that you would understand it. Now, whether this Theophilus was an actual person, 
or the, a general audience, um, you might be able to see Theophilus here. There's our word filio. Remember what filio meant? It's love. And theo, if you know your um, Greek a little bit, uh, like theocracy, uh, means God. So this is a, a, love, a lover of God. So that's you and me. Um, but it may also have been a person. Notice here that it's most excellent Theophilus when he's writing in Luke. So Luke knew this person. And uh, he must have been a, some sort of, you know, perhaps powerful individual. And uh, Jesus says, I'm sorry, Luke says, I, I'm going to tell you what Jesus did. I want to write this in an account that I'm going to write his gospel and all about what Jesus did for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. You know, you've, you've, you've learned about Jesus. I want to write it down for you so you have an account of it. And that's the gospel of Luke. Uh, and then he continues that here. And he, and he just calls him Theophilus, perhaps. He had become a believer and, and, and had perhaps shed that great title. And it's just, no, I'm just a brother. Um, not only a lover of God, but a lover of the brethren. Just a speculation there. The key thing is, now as you're reading Acts, you know that Luke actually wrote it. And that'll be significant. There'll be times when you're reading in Acts and it says, you know, we went there or they went there. Um, and we'll know when he, when he includes the we, Luke's involved. When it says they, perhaps Paul left and Luke stayed behind in that place. And, and Paul went off and did things until they got back together again. So the Gospel of Luke, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke is the Acts of the Apostles. And then some, some parallel accounts. This is uh, uh, another way that, that, that you can use cross-references to help fill in some details. Now, Luke 21 is a really, really fascinating, um, fascinating chapter about uh, Jesus' prophecy concerning the last days. And they were there up on a hill, perhaps looking down at the city. There's ancient Jerusalem. And uh, the, the disciples say to him, you know, look how beautiful these stones are in this amazing city. And Jesus says, these, these things which you see, the days will come in which one, not one stone should be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. This would be shocking to them. There's a time coming when Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. So they asked him saying, teacher, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, that's fascinating. If you want to find out Jesus' answer, go to Luke 21 and, and read the rest of the chapter. It's amazing. And some of what he said is relevant up into our day. Um, just a little, you know, uh, teaser there about the significance of Bible prophecy. Well, again, here we are, Luke, uh, Luke 21, verse 7, treasure of scriptural knowledge. And what we can see is that when he says these things, he says, you know, have a look at Matthew 24, have a look at Mark 13. Go ahead and, and find that parallel account. When we go to Matthew 24, we can see it says here, so they asked him, teacher, when shall these things be? Um, we can see that in, in uh, Matthew 24, it says the disciples asked him privately. And in fact, in, in Mark 13, it wasn't all the disciples. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So the they here of Luke is actually the disciples and not all the disciples, but these four in particular. And so they were, it was a private little conversation that, that we get to, to hear. But when it was first given, it was just amongst Jesus and four of his closest disciples who he gave some insights into um, what was going to happen um, in, in the coming future when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, which happened in AD 70 just 40 or so years on from where, when they were spoken, and has also relevance to Latter-day prophecy and, and even today. 
we can see that there's um, turmoil in Jerusalem and in that part of the world. And it indicates that Jesus is going to come back soon and, and make things right. Now, just a little um, uh, introduction to the, the worksheet, the, the, that, uh, the homework, if you will, from week three. It's all about the temptations of Christ. And it's about using cross-references. Now, again, I know you can't see everything here on the screen here, but here's Matthew chapter 4. This particular Bible, it says, here's the first temptations. Here's the parallel account. Here's the second temptation and the parallel account in Luke. Here's the third temptation and the parallel account, again, in, in, in Mark and Luke. Um, so if we just blow this up a little bit, we'll know that the first temptation was uh, that the, the, the devil said to him, you know, why don't you make this stone into bread? And Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You'll also notice that in this particular Bible, the words of Jesus are in red, which is the, a feature in some Bibles. It's quite useful to see Jesus' words. Now, um, notice that it says here, it is written. This phrase, it is written, is repeated over and over in these temptations. Well, where was it written? Um, the cross-references help you. And it's up here. I uh, see this little A, and it takes you back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, you would read the phrase, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. My suggestion is that you read all of Deuteronomy chapter 8, not just where Jesus is quoting from. Why is Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy in this particular case with, with making stone into bread? Um, there's a lot of that's going on in Deuteronomy that gives insight into what's going on here in Matthew chapter four. So I would, I would suggest that you, you try that homework. Not only is it interesting what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter eight, it gives some insight into like, why is Jesus being tempted? Uh, how are the temptations taking place? What's the purpose of the temptations? He's just been baptized. And uh, then um, as we mentioned uh, in the Luke account in Luke chapter four, uh, he's just been baptized. He's then tempted. Then he goes into the synagogue and he, the, he's rejected by his own people and they try and throw him off a hill. All this is what's going on here in these temptations. Um, and where he quotes from in the three incidences are very interesting. I don't want to spoil it more than that. Um, if you have some questions, you can, can reach out. Um, but this is just an example of how doing some of this organic Bible study, you know, and, and, and the cross-references help speed up that process a little bit, add a little bit of fertilizer to our study. And you can just flip back and forth between Matthew and Luke and Deuteronomy and try and piece this together. Why was being Jesus being tempted? Um, was he was he tempted in this way later? Um, obviously, the, the amazing exhortation for us right here is how do we overcome temptation? Well, we quote scripture. If we have God's word in our head, then we'll be able to overcome the temptations like Jesus did, because we know he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. How did he do that? He had God's word in his mind. He was able to bring it to bear when circumstances required it. So I hope you found that uh, helpful once again uh, in learning to read the Bible more effectively. Um, and I hope that you'll join us next week for week four. And uh, it's my prayer that God will bless you as you read his word. Remember to pray for guidance and insight. And hopefully some of the things we've learned today will help you to that end. So until next time, uh, take care and God bless.